this week on the Back Table Podcast. Number one, make sure the right diagnosis was made. Number two, make sure that you understand the anatomy to the best of your ability after reviewing your imaging in great detail. Number three, utilize the best technique possible as you're doing the surgery itself. And by that, I mean a complete surgery with removal of all the ethmoid partitions, um, identifying the lamina and the skull base, and preserving mucosa. And that's a huge one. You strip the mucosa and that is going to always be a problem area. And then, you know, regular care and follow-up with rinses and debridements is absolutely crucial. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. Our goal here is medical education in otolaryngology. We seek to accomplish this through conversations with experts in the field, and we hope that you can take this information and apply it to your practice. My name is Ashley Agan, and I'm a general ENT practicing at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. And my name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT at UT Southwestern in Dallas. How are you doing today, Ash? So good, Gopi. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm still, you know, rinsed, pre-rinsed, got the sinus, but, you know, that's okay. It's clearing up with my lozenges, <laughs> with my handy-dandy lozenges. We have a really, really special, awesome, awesome guest today, um, Dr. Ashley Halderman, who is a friend and colleague of ours. Um, she's going to talk to us today about uh, revision endoscopic sinus surgery. Dr. Ashley Halderman is an assistant professor in the Department of Otolaryngology at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center with us here in Dallas. After receiving her medical degree from Boston University, Dr. Halderman completed her residency in otolaryngology at the Cleveland Clinic. She did her fellowship in rhinology and skull-based surgery at Johns Hopkins uh, University School of Medicine. Ashley, again, is here to talk to us today about revision endoscopic sinus surgery. Welcome to the show, Ash. How are you doing? Thank you, ladies. It's so nice <laughs> to see you. We don't get to do that very often these days. You know, your hair's no. grown. I haven't seen it long. I like it. I know. I started the pandemic with a pixie. <laughs> kind of went through a lot of different phases, like the pandemic. And they're <laughs> in the long bob. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We know you pretty well, but for those of, of our listeners who may not know you as well, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little background, and then about what kind of practice you have? Sure. So I grew up in the great state of. Kansas. I <laughs> uh, went to Kansas State University where I was at a walk-on for the track team and I focused in uh, the long and triple jump. But I always joke that I wasn't, you know, coach would be like, okay, real athletes, go hit the track. Alderman, <laughs> go hit the gym. Because the gym. I mean that the books. Because, <laughs> you know, I was the academic uh, booster, GPA booster for the team. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I met my, somehow <laughs> I know, and and I did. I tutored a lot of people, so. <laughs> but it was it was so awesome. It was such a great time. And uh, then when I moved to Boston, I met my husband Brett, and he's been generous enough to kind of jaunt around the country with me in the quest of rhinology training and then a rhinology job. And we have three dogs that we picked up along the way. Last dog was not something he wanted. <laughs> he was gone when I brought it home. <laughs> um, and so anyway, so that's a little bit about me. And my practice is a combination of kind of general rhinology and skull-based surgery. And I think 
probably the skull-based side. I mean, I, I really love everything that I do. People will always ask me, is there a favorite thing that you do? And I'm like, no, not really. Because, you know, there's something that I enjoy in every case or every surgery that I do. And um, the things that I like about, I guess, skull base and, and also revision sinus surgery is that there's no clear roadmap and you kind of don't know what you're going to get. And there's some kind of creative thinking and some decision making on the fly that goes into those types of surgeries. Even if you have imaging and whatnot, and you've done endoscopy in the clinic, you just kind of never know what you're going to find. My fellowship director, I think, coined the best term, which is forensic rhinology. <laughs> That's what he would say whenever we were doing a, a revision case that, you know, was not his own revision. It was coming in from somewhere else. You kind of had to do a little bit of forensic rhinology. And I don't know if this should be included or not, but when I was a second year resident, one of our chiefs was kind of going through and guessing what we would go into. And he said, I think you're going to go into rhinology. And at the time, I didn't really know much about it. <laughs> I remember saying, I want to be a real surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think that's a good lesson in uh, don't speak until you know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and look at you now. No, I know. I'm I'm not a real surgeon. No, <laughs> At least based on my PGY2 impression of what rhinology was. So um get, getting into it, you know, kind of these these patients presenting who who may or may not need revision sinus surgery. What does that look like in your clinic? You know, what kind of patients are you seeing and what what tends to be the chief complaints and problems that are going on? Can you tell us more about that? It can be a, a variety of issues. You know, from revision surgery, if there was maybe not complete dissection, then they're still having a lot of the same symptoms and a lot of uh, recurrent exacerbations or infections. If they have recirculation, then they're talking about a lot of really thick drainage that just kind of won't go away. And, you know, sometimes people are presenting with symptoms secondary to a mucosal or even a mucopiocele. So, I, you know, I think that a lot of times they're coming in because the issues that they sought surgery for in the first place didn't really resolve, or even in the worst kind of setting got a little worse, or they developed new symptoms. And, you know, I think one of the most important aspects of meeting a patient for the first time who has had prior sinus surgery and is still having problems is asking them, what do they do for their sinuses? And I would probably split the population to do two different groups, one of which is they're not doing any kind of maintenance therapy, so no rinses, no intranasal steroid sprays. And, you know, you always kind of start them with that and see if, if that's enough. And I'd say that in a fair number of people, that's that's enough. And in other people, it, it's not. But you have to kind of tease out what they've been doing, what they've been kind of educated on, what they've been told or and, you know, always what they interpreted that as. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I feel like some patients think about sinus surgery as a as a cure. You know, I had say, you know, and that's all. Now, now I'm done. I don't need to do anything. Mm -hmm. So there's sometimes there's some re-education. Mm -hmm. It's a very good point, especially your polyp patients or allergic fungal sinusitis. I can't tell you how many people's jaws kind of drop, but I'm like, surgery is not curative and you have to continue on a maintenance regimen or they will come back and they're kind of like, nobody ever told me that, or they just didn't interpret what was being said right. to them as 
<laughs> as that. So that's a great point, Dr. Hagen. For the patients that come to you, do you look at uh, CRS with polyps differently than CRS without polyps when they need revision surgery? Does it just because like with polyps, you almost expect it, right? Because polyps come back. Is there a different way in which you think about those patients and their need for revision? I, you know, I probably approach it in somewhat the same manner, which is I always like to get an updated CAT scan so that I can understand what the extent of the prior surgery was. In revision cases, an incomplete ethmoidectomy can be present in up to like 75% of revisions. And so let's say for polyps, that's a pretty big deal. You know, I mean, for, for uh, CRS, it is as well. But, you know, that's kind of the first place. Well, first place I start is kind of, you know, what have you done? What type of uh, medical therapy have you kind of stayed on maintenance-wise? For polyp patients, I'm always asking them if they've done topical steroids or budesonide rinses. And I find that a lot of them maybe started out doing it and then stopped when they felt better or they never did. So again, making sure that they're on the appropriate therapy. So that's, you know, the first thing is making sure they've been doing what they should be doing. And then number two is getting a CAT scan. You know, probably number two is doing the physical exam and an endoscopy to kind of get a little bit of an understanding. And then I supplement that with a CAT scan. And with that CAT scan, I'm trying to just kind of understand the extent of the prior surgery, where their trouble areas might be. And that changes my plan and, and, and view, I think, more than anything and drives sort of the next steps. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you find that the patients who maybe need more revision, revision surgery or, or have had a lot of bone left behind, do those tend to be polyp patients just because of that, you know, the nature of that surgery? Maybe people are more likely to leave, you know, bone behind because of um, visualization during surgery, or is it kind of a mixed bag? I'd say it's more of a mixed bag, actually. It's a great question. I haven't really ever observed any differences. I tend to kind of see the same mistakes made in, in revision cases. And I think that there's some sort of technical aspects that lead to this sort of cascade of, you know, this first step sort of impedes the next step, which impedes the next step and whatnot. And, you know, I think it's also compounded by the fact that we're operating near really vital structures, the orbit and the skull base. And nobody wants to damage either of those structures. And so the instinct is to stay as far away from them as possible. And I think that that leads to a lot of the issues that I see in patients that need revision surgery. So when I'm educating our residents, I try to say, you know, think about parotid surgery. Why do you find the facial nerve? Well, you find the facial nerve to protect the facial nerve. And so it's the same thing with, with sinus surgery. You know, I find the orbit, I find the skull base, and that way I can keep my eye on them and make sure I'm protecting them. So I, you, I lead us to a good point um, in terms of some of the same mistakes or things. Can you go through what you find maybe on a CT and then what you also maybe then see in the OR in terms of some, some of the same patterns that you see? Yeah. So the CT scan, you know, there's a lot of little minute details that you can't completely tease out on the CAT scan. So that's where the nasal endoscopy is really important. So when I, when I first start off with like in clinic a nasal endoscopy, I'm looking to see are the middle turbinates lateralized? Is there residual unks in it? Do I see kind of a posteriorly based uh, small antrostomy that looks like it probably doesn't extend to the natural os, which is 
probably covered by some residual unks in it. But if those things are present, you can't really see much past that. So that's where the CAT scan comes in really handy. And I'm looking to see what did the ethmoid partitions look like? How much of a dissection was done there? The frontal recess, obviously the anatomy can be really challenging there. And if you haven't done a complete unksonectomy or total ethmoid, you probably didn't open up into the frontal. So you're kind of assessing what the frontal recess looks like and kind of what the degree of dissection that occurred up there. You're also looking for areas of osteitis, which you often see in cases of revision sinus surgery. And a lot of times that's maybe a sign that there'd been some mucosal stripping, but it can also be sort of a side effect of prolonged and chronic inflammation. So you're trying to get a, an idea of how, how much there is of that in the sinuses. And that's always kind of a bummer to see because it's really hard to remove that. Uh, the scarring is going to be not great. The healing is not going to be great. And it will really prolong the surgery, you know, while you're doing it. It's, it makes it harder. And when you're, when you're seeing these patients in clinic, I assume you're using um, a rigid scope for your exam most of the time. And do you use, you know, zero degree, 30 degree? What are your specifics around that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm using a rigid scope because the, the visualization and the picture is so much better than a flexible scope. And in anybody who's had prior sinus surgery, I use a 30 degree scope without fail. And you can use a zero degree, but I really think you get so much better information and detail with a 30 degree scope than you do with a zero because you kind of look around corners and look up and yeah. So that's my go-to for people who have had prior sinus surgery. And so let's say you have the patient that has the CRS, no nasal polyps, that has, you see that there's some residual unfinite or, you know, maybe that posterior entrostomy and you can't tell, you know, if it's connected. How do you manage them? I mean, do they definitely need to go back to the OR or are you able to kind of avoid a revision or kick the can, if you will, a little bit further? What are some of your non-surgical tricks for these patients? Again, it just comes down to what are they doing for their maintenance? So I'll always try every patient on maintenance therapy. You know, if they have an active infection at the time that I see them in CRS, I'll treat them with some antibiotics and get them started on rinses and intranasal steroid sprays. And then I see them back after a month and see how they did. And our, all of our decision-making goes based off of how they are doing. You know, this is a symptom-driven process and a quality of life thing. And I tell patients, only you can tell me what's good enough and what's not good enough. I have certain kind of logistics that I lay down. And in my polyp patients, I don't like to do more than two courses of oral steroids a year because you have to start worrying about the long-term side effects of that. And especially in older patients and in, in female patients, you have to worry about bone density. It actually can, you know, really suck the calcium right out of the bones. So I, I do have some hard limits as far as polyps go. And, you know, if I see any evidence of a mucosal, then I'm going to be a little bit more, I mean, I am going to be inclined to recommend surgery because this is something that just surgically you have to fix. And same thing with like fungal debris or fungal material, fungal ball, anything like that. That's going to be, I'm going to recommend surgery much sooner. And, you know, but with, with recirculation and just kind of general drainage and kind of poor functioning of the sinuses, I guess, I, I do think rinses can mitigate a lot of those issues and help people control them. And so then it becomes a patient kind of preference thing. And, you know, I tell them because sometimes they just don't want to do the rinses. And I'm like, well, 
if I did sinus surgery on you, guess what? You're still going to have to do the rinses. This is a chronic inflammatory disease that you're going to always have that nothing's going to cure. So you have to do something to maintain. Yeah. And just kind of breaking down some of those um, treatments that you discussed. So for example, with your um, steroid sprays, when um, do you prefer a steroid spray versus uh, something like a budesonide rinse? Do you have patients put the budesonide in their rinse or do you have them apply it directly to the nose? Great questions. Steroid rinses, I'm usually saving for polyps or AFS, allergic fungal sinusitis. And you know, nasal sprays, I'm using in people with CRS without polyps. And in those who have pretty significant allergic rhinitis. Basically, my thoughts are, and there have been good studies that show that intranasal steroid sprays distribute well to the anterior and inferior portions of the nasal cavity, whereas rinses tend to get into the sinuses much better. So if I'm needing to deliver steroid up into kind of the ethmoid cavity, if you will, or, you know, wherever, then I'm going to go for budesonide rinses. And I do have them put the budesonide directly into the rinse. I have a couple of reasons why. Well, number one, there have been good fluid dynamic and cadaveric studies that show that the delivery of these topical things depend on the fluid column. So you're looking at the volume and rate at which saline is delivered. And if you think about it, a fluid column has to, de to develop to be able to kind of distribute to these different layers. And so in my opinion, you know, if you do be destined directly into the nasal cavity, it's not quite getting in uh, maybe as well. There's also a lot of, uh, you know, if you have to do the intranasal budesonide, which, hey, if a patient can tolerate rinses or if they have specifically, you know, their one symptom is hyposmia, then you can go with the direct intranasal budesonide. But that has to be positionally delivered and it adds this layer of dedication and stuff that patients have to go through to do this. And I wonder about how well they adhere to that. But by that, you mean that they have to hang their head upside down after they Yeah, and they have nose. to sit there for a few minutes and it's kind of unpleasant and it just takes extra time to do and, and everyone adding stuff to their daily routine. You know, they just want to like simplify. So I try to make it as easy as possible. Adherence and compliance is really important. So yeah, I throw them a bone. I agree. <laughs> I have my patients just do it directly in the rinse too because I need them to be to be consistent. And that extra 10 minutes isn't, isn't going to be sustainable for um, some of the patients. So. It's not a small thing. It adds up. It sure does. Before moving on, I also wanted to ask you about your steroids and your antibiotics. So for your courses of oral steroids, what is your preference? You know, prednisone, methylprednisolone, what, for how long and do you taper, et cetera. For your antibiotics, do you have a particular, you know, empiric antibiotic that you use or do you, is it culture driven um, or does it just depend? So as far as steroids go, I like Medrol a little bit better than prednisone. And I was taught by my very brilliant fellowship director, Dr. Lane, that Medrol actually more closely chemically resembles our own cortisol. And so there are kind of fewer mineral corticoid side effects associated with it. And, you know, this might be completely biased, but I do think people tolerate it better. Now, some people are tried and true on prednisone and they don't want to deviate. And that's fine. Then I'll let them have prednisone. You know, I'm 
sort of do collective decision-making with the patient. But Medrol is my go-to. And I have a variety of bursts and tapers that I will prescribe kind of depending on, you know, when the last time was that a patient took a steroid, how, you know, what the doses are that they've responded to in the past, how bad their polyp burden is, those kinds of things. But typically I'll start at 32 milligrams of Medrol and then taper down to 24, 16, 8, and stop. And I'll do anywhere from four days on each dose up to seven days on each dose. And as far as antibiotics go, my go-to is doxycycline. You know, again, I think patients tolerate it very well. I see very few kind of side effects. There can be some GI upset, but I tend to see less kind of gut aggravation than I do with like Augmentin or Amoxicillin. And, you know, based on kind of the literature, doxycycline sort of has this nice anti-inflammatory factor that's contributing as well and is anti-staph. And so that's what I, what I go for in most patients. Of course, you need to counsel them that, you know, this being Texas and now it's summer, they need to avoid going out into the sun when they're on it (laughs) or they get the photosensitivity reaction. If they are allergic to doxycycline or it it, um, interacts with their other medications, then I'll a lot of times do ceftin. And uh, sometimes if a patient has, typically I don't do this in polyp patients, but in, in some patients I'll do biaxin. And again, I kind of ascribe to the theory that chronic sinusitis is a purely inflammatory process and that infections are sort of a sequela of that. And so if you target the inflammatory cascade, I do think you're going to get more success with, with your treatments. And so then sometimes I'll do Biaxin. It's uh, potentially, you know, it's got some anti, or some immunoflam- um, sometimes I'll, I'll choose Biaxin because of the immunomodulation that it provides. And sometimes in patients who are getting kind of some recurrent infections and they don't want to do surgery, then I'll have them add mupirocin to their rinses. And I have a lot of people who have had a lot of great success on that and really, really like that. And it's a great way to avoid systemic antibiotics. For the mupirocin and the rinses, Ash, you just tell them to, how do you direct them to do it? A dime size amount in the rinse bottle? Like, how do you tell them to put it in and how often? And is it just for a certain amount of time or is it ongoing? First of all, you need to make sure that you're not prescribing mupirocin nasal because that's actually petroleum-based and it's not water-soluble. So you have to do just regular mupirocin ointment, which is water-soluble. And I always counsel patients that it's just kind of barely water-soluble, so it does take a little bit of effort. Most people find that if they heat it up, it works a little bit better and it melts a little bit better. You have to shake it really vigorously. I have them use it twice a day, and I have them put about what I say is the amount of toothpaste that you put on your toothbrush. So it ends up being about the first joint of your index finger is a good kind of amount. Yeah, twice a day on that. And, you know, I have some people who do it just whenever they start to get symptoms and then they're able to head off a full-blown sinus infection. Others, like folks that have had radiation and have a lot of crusting and sort of issues induced with that, anybody who has sort of poor ciliary clearance, and that can come from a variety of reasons, not just cystic fibrosis, but other kind of disease processes, they're kind of doing it more frequently or doing it kind of on a regular basis. Oh, and and Dr. Egan, you had asked me earlier about cultures. I tend to not get cultures and kind of straightforward 
cases, when I'm taking a culture, a lot of times it's because I'm considering that potentially this person needs to be on a topical antibiotic and may have a lot of resistance. And so those are mostly my like CF patients, cystic fibrosis patients. Uh, what kind of topical antibiotics are you doing? Are there, or just mupirocin would be one example, I guess. Yeah, and mupirocin's definitely the one I use the most. There's not a lot of evidence actually for the use of topical antibiotics in patients. The ICARS rhinosinusitis statement actually recommends against fungal, you know, medications in irrigations. I never do that. For my CF patients, though, you know, to avoid IV antibiotics for a sinus infection because, you know, IV antibiotics aren't very effective for sinusitis in most people. You know, it it's dep- it depends on their what they're growing out, and I'd say a lot of times, you know, some pseudomonas and potentially. Um, some staph, and I'll put them on some tobramycin more often than in anything else. And that's something that the pharmacy mixes in the saline for the patient? Yeah, we have compounding pharmacies that we order from, and typically they have, they give them capsules. So they break the capsule open and sprinkle a powder into the saline, and then they shake that up. And so when we're saying topical, we're not talking about nebulized antibiotics, correct? Just to clarify that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I'm having them put them in the rinses. I have a few patients who have sort of sensory disorders and the rinses are just not something that they can do. And so in those instances, the nebulization was more successful. And so I'll, I'll defer to what my patient is able to tolerate and do in special circumstances. What do you think about these powered nasal irrigation systems? Are they any better? Do you have any patients that use them or really like them? Or Yeah, so there's not been really head-to-head studies comparing these powered ones to the kind of tried-and-true neti pot or the rinse bottle. And in my own practice, I have seen individuals who just decided to switch over and start using the mechanized or motorized rinses. And they started to accumulate mucin and, and goo in their maxillary sinuses. So again, I, and you know, I haven't studied this, so this is just my own personal opinion, but in post-operative patients, I counsel them to stick with the rinse bottle because I have my doubts that the motorized units can build that same fluid column. You know, it's a flood and it's not a stream. And so if something's just kind of producing a stream, it's probably not going to get into the sinuses like we want it to. So before we move on to kind of discussing the surgery, the parts of the surgery specifically, is there anything else from a maximizing medical management standpoint that we have forgotten to ask you about or that you want to just make sure that our, our listeners um, take home? I think one more point that I'll make is whenever you're seeing a person for revision sinus surgery, You also need to question and make sure that the correct diagnosis was made in the first place. So if a patient's coming to you and they've got really severe headaches and that's why they had sinus surgery and you look at the CAT scan and there's just nothing really that correlates with those headaches, then that's not going to be a successful revision sinus surgery because that's not the issue. (laughs) You know, I actually just had a patient who had several sinus surgeries for sinus symptoms that we think are due to chronic graft versus host disease. 
And so again, it's about kind of really, I mean, I think rhinology is all about being very detail oriented, you know, and I, I have the luxury of being very selective in, in who I operate on. And I, I don't want to operate on a person who's not going to get a benefit. You know, the other thing that you have to really tease out is who's coming in with recurrent, recurrent viral illnesses versus true, you know, chronic sinusitis. And I'm less confident that any surgery of mine is going to make huge difference on this person who's getting recurrent viral infections. That's just sort of going to happen no matter what. So I think going back and really thinking about, I'll, I'll ask the patients, so what initially led you to have sinus surgery? What symptoms were you having? What was going on? Okay. And what got better after surgery and what didn't? And Okay, so what have you tried? What have you done? And, you know, if there's any question about whether their sinus symptoms are truly due to chronic sinusitis or underlying sinus disease, I like trying to capture a CT scan at a time when they're actively having symptoms but have not started any medical therapy. So what I'm trying to do there is capture them exactly when they are symptomatic and I'm correlating whether or not there's any underlying radiographic sinus disease. And I know a lot has been taught to us and we're all like taught to do post-treatment scans. Right. But I kind of think that needs to be rethought because I don't really know how beneficial post-treatment scans are in the decision-making process. Not to say that we shouldn't do them or that we need to deviate from what we've been taught, but it's just an interesting kind of thing to think about. No, I think that's an important point you make up because you're right. Not every Oh, I feel like with sinus, it's there's not a straightforward algorithm for, you know what I mean? Certain things work better for others. And if, if the diagnosis itself is still in question, um, it makes sense to kind of see what the scan looks like when their symptoms are present. Because if the scan looks okay, then what are we really, what are we really addressing? Yeah. And when you explain to patients that you're trying to, especially with like headaches, I like to use the analogy of you're standing at a fork in the road. And on one side is, is sinus geared treatment and options. And and the other hand is headache management. And so I'm trying to decide and make a really good decision as to what would be the best road to take and what's going to provide them with the best relief because they've struggled for for so long and they've been miserable. And all I want is for them to feel better. Yeah. So I know we're talking about revision sinus surgery today, but for those patients, what is your management then? Or, Or what's the counseling like? Because for some people, and I think of it as the same thing as like ear pain, right? Ear, ear pain may not have an otologic reason or may not be something that we find on exam. Headaches, a lot of times it's not from sinus or something that we see on an ENT exam. How do you counsel those patients and how do you help them? Yeah, I, I use that analogy. And, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll sort of have them think back to all the things that they've done for their sinuses. And I'll, I'll ask them point blank, like, how effective was this ever? And some of them kind of come to this realization that not really. And, and so they kind of, and, you know, I think that any patient just wants to feel like you are listening to them and that you're not trying to, um, I think headaches, a lot of times people think you're trying to tell them that it's all in their head or something like that. And, you know, so I'll say, listen, I see a lot of patients who have for so long thought my headaches are sinus related or sinusitis related. And, you know, I'll always tell them like, you know, sinus headaches. Okay. So sometimes you get sinus headaches because you have swelling and infection in your sinuses. 
But other times you have sinus headaches because you have headaches. And those headaches aren't being driven by a process that is within the sinus that I can fix with either medicines or surgery. So we need to determine what type of sinus headache kind of you're having. And if you're having the kind of sinus headache that is related to inflammation and infection in the sinuses, I can continue to work on that on, in that realm. However, if there's just no evidence that we can find and we think back to all the things you've done and all the surgeries that you've had and never made any difference, maybe it's time to start treating this like a headache. And I think we're going to have a lot more improvement in your symptoms and better quality of life. And some people are not very excited to hear that, but, you know, it's, it's all in the, the delivery. You have to show the patient that you, you care and that you're not abandoning them and that you're not, you know, dismissing their symptoms or whatnot. And I'd say, I think that people appreciate that you're trying to get objective information, you know, and I'll tell them that, like, when we get a CAT scan and you're having the symptoms, I'm getting information that's very objective and it's really going to clarify this picture for us. So I think education and letting them know that you're going to help them, even if it means that you're going to be sending them to a different doctor or it's going to be a different kind of management plan than what you typically offer, you can kind of, you know, have a very happy patient at the end of the day. I know it makes a lot of sense. Well, I think let's get into the patients that do um, become candidates for revision sinus surgery. I would love to hear about your setup. But before we do that, do you use image guidance every time for these patients? Is there ever a time where you don't need to use image guidance in these patients? I'd say the one time I feel very comfortable not using image guidance is if I'm just revising the maxillary and maybe anterior But beyond that, I do recommend image guidance because... Like I said before, forensic rhinology, there can be some significant alterations in the anatomy and you can also lose a lot of landmarks. And so it actually becomes very technically challenging. It can be a little confusing. So having anything that you can use at your disposal to help you and to guide you and to make it safer, it's never a bad idea. And can you talk to us about, um, about your setup? You know, what, what is on your, your back table, if you will, or, or your, or what, what do you, and what are you, what make sure it's on your, yeah. with <laughs> your mayo, on your mayo, what, what are the, <laughs> like, I always want my balls at prune. What, what do you always like to make sure that is there? Oh, I love myself a double baller. <laughs> <laughs> the ball tip seeker. Yeah, that's a classic one. Uh, micro debrider, of course. Um, I like the sickle knife for different things. I love myself the hoseman. It is probably the most beautiful, amazing interest instrument that man could ever conceive. <laughs> Human could ever conceive. <laughs> and, you know, it through cuts. And if it, there's a lot of osteitis, then kerosens. But I tend to do my dissection more with, with the microdivator and through cuts. And when I'm using through cuts, actually, I like the PD sized instruments. I kind of think that a lot of the regular sized instruments are just enormous. So <laughs> that's true. I kind of like a more elegant dissection. So yeah, I'll, my PD up through cut is probably one of my, my other favorite instrument. And do you have a certain order that you, um, that you tackle the surgery? Do you tend to go in the same order that you would as, you know, when it's not a revision case um, or is it different? That depends entirely on, on the case, you know. So if, if the anatomy is pretty identifiable and there are landmarks and they're very clear, then I'm going to approach it in my, my typical 
manner, which is, you know, anterior to posterior. And then uh, once you get the sphenoid, you kind of trace along the skull base coming posterior to anterior with an angled scope. But in cases where there are not a lot of landmarks, and I just, I just had a case like this uh, not too long ago, a patient with connective tissue disorder who had sinus surgery several times in a different country, and the postoperative care was pretty sporadic. So they weren't doing debridements. And I, I don't even know that he was really rinsing. And the amount of scarring that was present in the nasal cavities was just the worst I've ever seen. And there were very, very few identifiable landmarks. And so in a case like that, like the middle turbinate, I don't know, you know, I think it was involved in like massive scar and was, you know, I kind of took a guess at what I thought it was. And as I dissected out, it became kind of more clear. But in cases like that, I'll typically start by, you know, establishing the maxillary sinus and opening that up because that gives you a lot of detail. It gives you the roof of the, the maxillary sinus. It also gives you the posterior wall of the maxillary sinus. And the posterior wall of the maxillary sinus is, is sort of roughly in the, the same depth as what your sphenoid face is going to be. And then the height of the sphenoid os is going to be along the same kind of line as the roof of your maxillary sinus. So I'll use my maxillary sinus to then establish where my sphenoid is. And then I will open the sphenoid really widely because with the sphenoid, I can determine where the lamina is and where the skull base is. And then you can kind of use those two points to triangulate through when you're dissecting out the ethmoids. So that's where I'll do a little bit of a different dissection. And when you're doing, um, for example, there's unsinate left behind or, you know, you have the entrostomy not connected to the natural eyes. What are you doing to make sure that all the unsinate's gone down or that, you know, your um, anterior, I mean, that your natural eyes is connected to the entrostomy? What are certain things that you go back either and check or what are you doing to make sure those things are taken care of? So I like to use the ball tip seeker to kind of hook behind any part of the residual unxinate and sort of gently use that to kind of pull the unxinate off of the lamina and sort of show myself that edge as to where that is. And, you know, I'll resect what I can sort of of the unxinate. And then I'm going to use my 30 degree scope to really examine the middle meatus and, and the area of where I suspect the natural os is. And, you know, I think that that's a really critical step because in most patients, you are not going to be able to see the natural os with a zero degree scope. It's parasagittal, so you have to kind of have that angle. So I'm going to investigate the region with my uh, zero degree scope. I'll probe around with the ball tip seeker and try to kind of fall into that space. And at the same time, I'm kind of teasing to see, is there any residual unctionate left over? And, you know, if I find the os, make sure I join it up with the... Uh, rest of the antrostomy. And then as you're sort of moving more inferiorly, sometimes, you know, there is some unctionate still there, um, but it's sort of right at that junction of that and the maxillary line. So you're worried that, you know, if I take too many bites, I might injure the lacrimal system. And so I will take a backbiter and actually kind of use that to sort of palpate that edge right there. And if it moves, that I know that I do have a little bit more room. So I'll trim that down accordingly. And that can be a little bit confusing in revision cases because the bone, even if they barely did anything to the unctionate, the bone can become very thick. 
And, you know, a lot of times you're making that move based on feel and you're stopping when the bone gets thick. So I think having excellent visualization and palpating make it more clear. And what about the the frontal recess or, you know, anterior ethmoid cells that have been left behind? Any pearls for that region? I just want to say to me, the anterior ethmoid cell is under-respected. I find the anterior ethmoids to be some of the more difficult parts of the case. And I feel like I never appreciated that until several years out practicing, but that's just my personal opinion. Sorry. Well, and I would go so far as to say, I think that we do a disservice of educating residents in general about the unsinate. I, I think that the message we send is that the unsinate is a bit of a throwaway kind of part of the case. Because, you know, think about it. When you start out as a PGY2, they're like, here, take down the unsinate, get to the maxillary sinus. And I think that's actually technically way more challenging than like taking down the bulla. Yeah. So I've actually started residents out like PGY1s and 2s. You don't want to set them up for success. I want them to actually like sinus surgery. And, and what do you like? Well, you like what you feel like you're kind of good at. And so I'm going to set them up for success. And I'm, I'm going to, you know, I feel like I learned so much early on using angled scopes. That's just complicated. So, you know, I start them out with stuff that they can do with a zero degree scope and straight instruments. And actually, I sort of have a theory that an incomplete ethmoidectomy doesn't only lead to uh, recirculation, but it also leads to an incomplete ethmoidectomy and an incomplete frontal sinusotomy. So the superior part or the attachment of the unctinate, I tend to see people not be aggressive enough on that. And so as you're t- kind of in the axilla of the middle turbinate, you really need to be aggressive in taking the unctinate up as high as you can. And I was taught by my fellowship director that you need to take the unctinate up until you can see the suprabolar recess. So there's a space above the bola that you should be able to see once you've taken down your unctinate. And the benefit of doing the complete unctinectomy and kind of focusing on that spot is that it actually relaxes the middle turbinate quite a bit and it opens up your middle meatus even further. So and so your turbinate sort of drifts, you know, medially more just naturally. And then you're typically able, if there's an auger cell, an augernazi cell, you can see the inferior aspect of that augernazi cell and you can see the superbolar recess. So in doing this, you have defined the full height of your anterior ethmoids and you're going to do now a more complete dissection and not leave anything sort of along, you know, up above you. So that, that I think is a really critical point. And, you know, then you start taking down the you know, I'll start with the, identifying the bulla, and obviously I try to resect that in its its entirety. And then the, you know, identify the basal lamella, go through the basal lamella. And if you're having a hard time identifying the level of the lamina, because, you know, the anterior ethmoids, there's, there's typically more anterior ethmoid cells than there are posterior ethmoid cells. And the posterior ethmoid cells tend to be larger and more pneumatized. Yeah, I think we've all been in cases where there's tiny little air cells right on the lamina. And so you think that you're on the lamina and you really don't want to kind of go after these things because the last thing anybody wants to see is orbital fat. And so you kind of hedge off a little bit. If you want to really establish the true level of your lamina, probably the safest place to do that is that first posterior ethmoid cell that you enter as you're taking down the basal lamella. Usually it's a one, it's one big ethmoid cell, posterior ethmoid cell that aerates to the lamina. So if you just open that up and you get in there, you're going to be able to find the level of the lamina a lot easier. And a quick mention about the basal lamella, I always make sure 
that I, res- I open up my basal lamella to expose the full width of my posterior ethmoid cavity. And what I mean by that is I'm going to take it down laterally until I can see the orbit, and I'm taking it medially until I identify the uh, superior turbinate. Do you ever worry about destabilizing the middle turbinate too much with taking down too much of the basal lamella? It's a great question. And uh, you sure can do that in some cases. But generally, that's when you're taking the basal lamella down too far inferiorly. So that's where your strut is. So you want to make sure that you don't overdo it in that area. Usually, if you're just going like straight lateral and medial, you're not sort of in strut territory. But I do think that in revision cases, you find that the middle turbinate can be very demineralized. And so it can disarticulate off its attachment pretty easily. And then going back to the frontal, the frontal that's super scarred down, you know, endoscopically, sometimes it's hard to tell what is what. Um, If everything's kind of onion skinned or layered up, you're not going to just follow up in it necessarily with a probe and you kind of have to do a little bit more dissecting. And sometimes I find that it can be the tissue itself, like you said, can become osteotic or hard. And it's on image guidance, you're like, that's not skull base, but endoscopically what you're feeling, it can almost make you feel like that. How do you get through those types of situations? Yeah, frontal revision frontals are super challenging for all the reasons that you just so well laid out. (laughs) I think that the frontal, it starts with a really good review of your preoperative imaging. And, you know, I I know that the uh, International Frontal Anatomy Classification System came out not that long ago. Um, And this is sort of to take the place of the prior naming system, which was a little bit confusing at times. And it it defines things more on an anatomic basis. So you have your auger cell, you have your super auger cell, which is the cell above the auger, but not pneumatizing into the frontal sinus. And then you have your super auger frontal cell, which is. And then you have your bulla, your super bolar cell, and your super bolar frontal cell. And so going through and very detailed understanding of the frontal recess anatomy in regards to those structures, I think is really key. And I like to evaluate my frontal recess with a sagittal CT scan. I think it gives you sort of the best understanding. And this is where image guidance is really helpful. Obviously, you can only rely on it so far as it's accurate. So your understanding of the anatomy still is the most important tool in your toolbox. And I will sort of look at the anatomy and sort of try to identify each of those cells. And if I can, then I have a pretty good understanding of where I am and how the removal of this wall is going to open this next step up, so forth and so on. And what's important as well is if you can identify these cells, then you should have a pretty good idea as to where your outflow tract is for your frontal. Okay, it's going to be posterior to your augers, but anterior to your bolar cells. And so in between those, you should be able to find your frontal recess outflow track. So given, you know, the, these are revision surgery, you might be more worried about synechiae scarring um, afterwards. Do you feel like you are more inclined to use something like a stent, like a steroid eluding stent? Um, or, you know, maybe is that more for polyp patients or does it just depend? really depends on the case. I'll say that I'm very picky about my middle turbinates. 
I kind of tell the residents, and I don't think this is hyperbole, that if your middle turbinate lateralizes, you've just undone every single thing you've done in that surgery. And wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is just the worst. <laughs> it's like driving 500 miles to go to the beach and it's raining the entire time you're there, you know, like it's <laughs> useless. So I do several things to make sure that my middle turbinate does not lateralize. So uh, first I will bulgerize the turbinate, which is kind of scratching the mucosa on the medial aspect of the turbinate and then on the adjacent septum. I'll then pexy the turbinates to the septum with a quilting stitch. So I'll, I'll, I'll quilt a stitch through the septum with a 4-0 fast on a Keith needle. And uh, I start at the front of the nose. I do three passes on my way back. Third pass goes through the turbinates, through and through. And then I come forward through the septum back to where I started. And I tie the knot down. Then I will place a spacer in the middle meatus. And uh, we have nasopore, and so that's what I typically use. So very carefully... We'll make sure that when I put my nasal pore in, that I haven't stuck it on the wrong side of the turbinate. You know, you got to make sure that you didn't kind of detach your, your middle turbinate or kind of snap that stitch with that. You have to make sure you get it into the middle meatus. And in some cases, I will inject a little kinolog into that nasal pore. And if there's been a really bad frontal, uh, like if there was a lot of scar tissue or a lot of like osteotic bone and I had to do drilling, then, you know, sometimes I'll put a little piece of nasoport up there and inject that with some Kenalog. And, you know, I really, really love nasopore or anything that kind of is in the middle meat is that is dissolvable. There's actually been a few studies that they did a single blinded study where they did bilateral sinus surgery, put a nasopore in one side of the sinuses and not in the other. Patient didn't know which was which, and they had them report their pain scores. Pain scores were actually lower on the side with the nasopore in it. I think that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it retains the moisture better when they're doing their rinses. I think it prevents really hard crusts from forming. And those hard crusts are what patients find uncomfortable. And it also makes that first debridement that you do super straightforward and easy, which patients appreciate as well. Because, you know, they're going to be the most swollen at that time. They're going to be the most tender. And uh, when you just are able to do that with a suction in a pretty quick fashion, it really goes over pretty well. And I'll say that I counsel my patients on a couple of things I'm a real stickler about. So number one, they have to do the rinses after surgery. And, you know, there's pretty good data out there that shows that uh, not doing rinses after sinus surgery increases the rate of osteostenosis and uh, scar formation and scar band formation. And regular postoperative debridements lower that as well. So rinses and postoperative debridements, I believe, are the two kind of, you know, I, I think first and foremost, it starts with the surgeon's technique and your operative technique. But then afterwards, rinses and debridements are going to keep things open and help the healing process. Do you ever just take the middle turbinate, cut it in half? When, when are you just like, this turbinate's got to go? I, that, is that blasphemy? No, not at all. Not at all. There's actually some studies that show that there's a uh, it changes drug distribution and delivery into the sinuses. And, you know, there's some studies that show that if you resect it in like polyp cases or whatnot and do like a low thrip on those people, then it decreases the number of revision cases. I think where you have to be careful is, you know, this kind of newly described central atopic uh, disease, which is a lot of polypoid changes just on the middle turbinate and on like superior septum. 
And the thing is, I saw, I've seen this in real life uh, where a person removed a turbinate and then it seeds the entire sinus cavity. So that turbinate was actually acting as, as a protection. It was preventing all of those allergens from penetrating into the sinuses. And that polypoid change was kind of evidence of that. But you remove that in central atopic people and it, bam, now it's like wildfire and they've got polyps everywhere. And I think, especially in revision cases where I see people removing the middle turbinate is as a way to avoid doing a septoplasty. And I definitely don't think that that's the, the right way to go about surgery. I love septoplasties. I think that they are beneficial on multiple levels. Um, obviously, Dr. Shaw, you have different considerations to make operating in children. So this is in the adult population. But number one, if you're struggling at all, just do the darn septum. You know, don't cut out the middle turbinate as a workaround because that's uh, it doesn't really help. You know, when you have a deviated septum, I think it probably alters the penetration of irrigations into the sinus cavities. It also makes it really uncomfortable for the patient when you try to scope them on that side. And in the end, you're just not going to get the view or the sort of space to instrument that you're going to need to do actually really good sinus surgery. So septoplasty, thumbs up if needed. <laughs> um, can you do any of this in the office or do you do any of this in the office? Let's say someone needs something where, you know, um, I don't know, for example, maybe recirculation or something, and you just need to connect that, you know, natural os. Um, do you ever do any of this in the office? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely have. It depends on sort of the anatomy, because sometimes it's very amenable. Uh, it also depends on the patient, what they're able to tolerate. And it depends on sort of what else is going on and how extensive their disease is. Obviously, if it's just a single thing, then yeah, absolutely, we'll try to correct recirculation in the clinic. I also will drain some mucosils in the clinic. You know, if I have imaging and I can feel pretty comfortable, confident about it, then I will absolutely take down, open up mucosils. And then anything in terms as we kind of are starting to wrap up, any final like tips, tricks, or pearls, um, whether it's in the OR or your post-op care? Well, like I said, regular debridements are crucial. And so I'll see a person for one week after surgery and, and clean out as much as I can. And then I'll see them a week or two after that. And that's really, really critical. I've also started putting patients on budesonide rinses in about the first or second postoperative appointment because I think it just helps kind of with the healing, helps cut down some of that inflammatory reaction that you typically see in the sinuses after surgery. And uh yeah, I mean, these are in non-polyp patients and, and polyp patients alike. And, you know, it avoids oral steroids, which is great. And it just acts topically. I, I don't do antibiotics for every patient after surgery. I'll kind of see how they're doing. And if I see some gunky looking stuff, I'll, I'll give them doxycycline, but only if, if I see that. And, you know, if they're not rinsing, you can tell. And I'll have a very frank conversation with them about that. And then usually I'll arrange a shorter term follow-up to kind of make sure that things are heading in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think key takeaways, number one, make sure the right diagnosis was made. Number two, make sure that you understand the anatomy to the best of your ability after reviewing your imaging in great detail. Number three, 
utilize the best technique possible as you're doing the surgery itself. And by that, I mean a complete surgery with removal of all the ethmoid partitions, um, identifying the lamina and the skull base, and preserving mucosa. And that's a huge one. You strip the mucosa and that is going to always be a problem area. And then, you know, regular care and follow-up with rinses and debridements is absolutely crucial. So, you know, I think those are sort of the main highlights as far as how to be successful with revision cases. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. We covered a lot of information. It could probably go on, you know, longer uh, if, if, we, if we had the time. Um, but we appreciate you being here, giving us the, the rundown for, for our listeners. Of course, ladies. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Great. Ash. I missed you, girls. I <laughs> Hi, friends. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I, I love that you're doing this and uh, just mad respect to the two of you. And just am really, really grateful for this opportunity. Mm. Well, thank you so much again, Ash. And thank you for letting me call you all the time and get your advice on some of my own sinus cases. I really appreciate your oh, guidance. Girl, anytime, anytime. <laughs> you know, I like to talk boogers. <laughs> so thank you to all of our listeners. If you're a first time, thank you for stopping by. If you are coming back on and listening, we really appreciate your time and support. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback. Reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on the show. Thank you to our audio engineer today, Kieran Ganon, and our blog writers, Wasik Nadim and Varun Sagi. And of course, our media MVP, Adang and Chi Dong. They're twin sisters and they're amazing. And I think that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Mm-hmm.